0: Today, we will be reading from Matthew 18:21 through 35 Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle... He found one of the fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And shouldn't you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart.
1: The part with Peter and Jesus, Peter the apostle who's never gonna grow up, we'll come back to. The parable has some numbers in it. Ten thousand talents and a hundred denarii. It's meant to be a huge contrast. That's what provides the dramatic irony inside the parable and highlights the absurdity of receiving a huge amount of forgiveness but being unwilling to deliver a small part. Sometimes we downplay the smaller debt because it's smaller in comparison, but a uh, hundred denarii is a big deal. One denarius is a day's wage, and a hundred of them, denarii, denarii, denariuses, a hundred of them is a big deal. It's about a third of a year's wage. So for us, think bigger than a car loan, but not as big as a 30-year mortgage, more like a solid uh, 12 to 15-year student loan. That's what this guy owed. It was big, but doable. Now, if you're a day laborer and you start from scratch every morning, it's more of a stretch, but it was at least conceivable that it should happen. 10,000 talents is just stupidly huge, all right? The talent was the biggest unit of value that they had, and 10,000 was as high as their number system went. So this was the biggest amount of money that they could talk about, but it's not quite right to say uh, a bajillion dollars, because this amount actually it's surprisingly close to the GDP of the entire Roman enterprise. All the money that Rome would scoop up in a year, this guy borrowed and lost. Now, the king is supposed to represent God. Don't push it too far because uh, he gave forgiveness and then canceled it and then had the guy tortured. So not a great look. The parable not really about the king. Except, except this guy couldn't borrow what the king wouldn't loan. And before we wonder how one man could squander $20 trillion, you have to wonder what what kind of idiot would lend out $10 trillion and then do it again and double down. What kind of king would let his treasure be wasted like that? What kind of king would let his honor and his glory be trampled in such a fashion? And what kind of king would wait and wait and wait to settle accounts? our kind of king. So let's pray to him as we get rolling. Dear Heavenly Father, please be with us as we turn to your word. May what I say clearly and accurately reflect uh, what you have said in your word and what your people today need to hear. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to start with a riddle. If you know the answer, do not shout it out. Uh, You can shout out other things, but not the answer to the riddle. This is one of my favorite kind of riddles, where it seems incomprehensible until you see the hook, and then you understand, and you think, oh my gosh, I was so dumb for not seeing it in the first place. Good stuff. Now, imagine... You have built your dream home, and it is beautiful, but there's just one problem. It's it's beautiful, it's got the amazing kitchen, and the lovely master bath, and these um, big, huge windows, and they all face south, and there's a gleaming kitchen with appliances, and a finished basement, and theater, blah, 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 stuff. But, problem, you're trapped inside by a bear. Question, what color is the bear? Now, how many of you have heard this one before? Couple. And how many of you have figured it out in the last 30 seconds? Don't say anything, show of hands. One, more, many. Okay, smart people. Now, we will come back to this later on. We will revisit with the bear. The topic this morning is forgiveness, as we've been discussing. Now, I've been stewing on this topic for 5 years accumulating articles and essays and books and other preachers sermons basically procrastinating pushing it off i've preached other things in the meantime uh, because it's just so delicate and Dangerous. And I could do real damage today if I'm not careful. I'm gonna try to be careful, but we'll see. The reason that I am finally daring to do this one is that I've observed in church world and in the broader English speaking world, we do not all mean the same thing when we talk about forgiveness. We don't have the same definition. Somebody says something, somebody hears something else, there's confusion or worse. I'm going to try to clear that up this morning. In fact, with five years of thinking about it, it didn't just turned into a long sermon. It turned into two sermons. So I'm going to be back in three weeks to finish what we're starting today. We'll have Carl next week, Joe the week after that, and then Zach has graciously ceded one of his rare free weeks in the calendar to me to let me figure this out. So next time we're going to talk about how we're going to do this, how it might unfold, how forgiveness can go wrong, and uh, why it's so hard, and I will answer any questions that you guys send in in the next few weeks. You can use the green cards, or you can go online to the Contact Us page. Uh, You can send it in anonymously. It'll ask for your name and uh, email address. Just make up something funny, send it in, and I will try to address those on August 6th. Now, there are three and a half assumptions before we really get rolling, without which none of this will make any sense. First, I'm going to assume, like Jeremy said, we have all sinned. Against other people. And therefore, the conditions for other people to need to forgive us exist. Second, also assuming that other people have sinned against each one of us. So, theoretically, the conditions exist where we might need to forgive other people. Third, um, this one's a little stickier. I'm taking as given... That we want to do what the Bible says. We consider the Bible to be authoritative and binding. As best as we understand what God is calling us to, uh, we want to be doing that. I think everything I'm saying comes from here. And if not, who cares what I think, right? All right. Now I want to say at the beginning, and this is serious. I know. I know that there is no section of this room, left, right, center, front, and back, where there is not some. Horrible story of sin being done against you. All the time I'm up here talking about what God commands us to do in forgiveness, it takes no effort for you to know. You already know. You knew as soon as you saw it in Nancy's email. This is the thing. That is the person that I find nearly or totally impossible to forgive. Now, for me, it's secondhand. I hear things from you. I married into a family with their fair share of carnage. Uh, but for me, forgiveness has just been the ordinary daily routine stuff. But maybe for you, it's deep and defining. And for some of you, you are that person. You did that thing that somebody else finds so dreadful. And today is for you as well. The things the Bible says about forgiveness apply equally to the small stuff and to the horrible stuff. All right, Things like adultery or domestic violence at a peer level or spanning generations, okay? It's Kid City Sunday, so understand the sort of things that happen on Law & Order SVU, all right? Harvey Weinstein, Larry Nassar kind of stuff, crimes. Our society has an ongoing conversation about race relations between peoples and about individual peoples of different ethnic groups and how forgiveness might or might not apply there. So I know this is a loaded topic, and I'm trying to be mindful. We'll see. Now, I'll say the most controversial thing up front, that way if I lose you, well, you'll know sooner than later. The last of our assumptions. We exist to glorify God. Now, outside of church, of course, that's outrageous. Inside the church, hopefully that's only uh, modestly controversial, not too surprising. The fourth catechism question asks, "How and why did God create us? God created us, male and female, in His own image to know Him, love Him, live with Him, and glorify Him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to His glory. Again, fine in theory, but in practice, that means that everything else serves that purpose." seatbelts, everybody. Physical safety and mental health are good and important. They matter to God and they matter to us. In the new creation, we will be physically and mentally and emotionally healed and whole. In the meantime, they are valuable and they are desirable and they are secondary in God's purposes. It's not that they don't matter. They just don't matter most. Sometimes the path laid before us that leads to God's glory is dangerous and grueling and unsafe. Now, we know that for missionaries and pastors, martyrs under oppressive regimes on the other side of the world. But for me, in, in my relationships, when there's real past trauma and an uncertain future, it sounds unhealthy. And I know that what I'm saying could potentially come across as naive or foolish, or preposterous, or dangerous. So I'm going to work hard to root it right here. Now, this is going to be my working definition. This is what I'm basing things off of. I did the word studies. This is what I ended up with. Forgiveness, I will not hold this against you. I will not hold this against you. That is the barest essence of what we mean, and I think I actually went one step too far in simplifying that, because as we'll talk about next time, there's a way to, I will not hold this against you, but get lost, back turned. But biblically, forgiveness has at least the leaning forward posture of, I'm not going to hold this against you, and maybe I might be willing, if met with your repentance, confession, and apology, to go forward from here, wherever here is, but uh, I've trimmed it down to, I will not hold this against you. Now, this is so important. What are we not saying? What does the Bible not mean by forgiveness? What is something that real people out there think that forgiveness means, but it does not and could get you into trouble? 13 things. First, we are not saying that the sin didn't happen, that when you forgive, that, oh, well, there was no wrong actually done. It was. It's there. That's why there's something to forgive. We're also not saying to pretend that the sin didn't happen. Just put it behind you, move forward, go forward. No, that is not what forgiveness is. We also want to say that forgiveness does not mean that the offender was justified in their actions, or that we approve of, or understand, or excuse the choices that they made. We might say, it's okay, but guess what? It wasn't okay. Forgiveness is necessary because there was a problem. We are not saying to forget. uh, Forty years ago, hundreds of thousands of books sold. Forgive and forget, Lewis Meads, (laughs) as though the worst thing that ever happened to you could just go missing from your hippocampus, right? Obliviate. No, that's absurd. We are not saying that Trust should be immediately re-granted. Trust is earned, and when trust is broken, it needs to be re-earned, and that takes time. Now, loud and clear, this one might be the most important. We'll come back to it. Forgiveness does not sidestep the criminal justice process, all right? You can forgive and report and go to the police. You can be a forgiving person and still speak and testify. Don't Ever let anybody tell you that forgiveness means silence or that forgiveness means you need to cover up? That might be conspiracy or perjury, but it's not forgiveness. We're also not saying that forgiveness requires you to re-endanger yourself or somebody in your care. Not required to. Boundaries and hedges are often appropriate. That's going to be a wisdom decision, not a mandate one way or the other. Uh, deep into the second half of the list, now forgiveness is not a feeling. It is a resolution of the mind, an exercise of the will. Now, forgive kind of feelings may, well, hopefully ideally, come along later, but it's not the essence of forgiveness. You can forgive and yet still feel pain and hurt and grief for the rest of your life. Now, forgiveness might be a decision, but it is not quick. It could be a decision you have to reaffirm day by day, hour by hour, a process that you have to recommit to over and over again. Some sins stick with us, and we need to, uh, if you're going to, to know and believe and do forgiveness, then that's going to take time. It's hard. Forgiveness is not a magic wand. It just makes everything better. And once I forgive, then this will all be behind me. No, that's balderdash. Pardon my French. And this one is going to require some unpacking next time for sure, but I'll say it here and now because as the way I've defined forgiveness, I will not hold this against you. It does not require anything from the other party. Now, plenty of respectable people will definitely disagree. The forgiveness has to be conditioned upon repentance. The way that I've defined it, I will not hold this against you, does not require that, although that would be, of course, desirable. And we will definitely have to untangle that for sure in three weeks. Now the last one is a couplet. Forgiveness, as Jesus calls us to it, is not possible without His help. It's just too much and too hard for fallen finite creatures like us. And yet, Forgiveness with his help is not impossible. It can be done, but only by his help. And that's how it fits into the bigger picture of how it glorifies God. Him enabling us to do things we could never do in a way that glorifies him. Okay. Bible time. I said some crazy things. I need to root it here. I'm pointing to the Bible as though I'm going to open it. This is a prop because I have twenty-two passages, and I'm not gonna go flipping around. I have it on my papers, and it will be on the screen. We'll have three passages. Nope, six passages from the Old Testament to set up the problem, the mystery, the riddle. Three passages from the New Testament that unravel and unfold the mystery, and then, uh, spoilers, it's Jesus. And then thirteen, thirteen commands from the New Testament for us as Christians. Many, many minutes of scripture coming up, all right? So the more provocative the application, the deeper the foundation. Here we go. God made a covenant with his people Israel through Moses on the mountain. God identifies himself for the purpose of the covenant. Please state your name for the record. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty well how is that supposed to work if he's gracious and forgiving and yet also going to punish the guilty and per the covenant we're all among the guilty how is that even supposed to work out now within a year from there the people were on the threshold of the promised land they send out the spies but 10 were bad and 2 were good and the people resolve and conclude god's not going to come through for us this cannot be done this isn't going to work god calls them out on their faithlessness and moses Answers in Numbers 14, addressing the Lord. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now, which at the time was about 18 months, but plenty enough time for that to be necessary. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs will see the land that I swore to give. So there's tension there. God is gracious and merciful. He will not cover sin, and he's clearly willing to dish out consequences for sin. The system of tabernacle sacrifices begins. In Hebrew, the word families for forgiveness talk about uh, covering over, so God doesn't have to look at it, and lifting and removing so that it is gone. And it has something to do with animals dying day after day, blood, blood, blood. The prophets pick up on this theme. Hundreds of years later, Micah is talking about the Lord's future restoration of the people because they've gone through a few cycles of blessing and, and uh, judgment. And he says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? And passing over transgression for the remnant, for what's left of us, for the remnant of his inheritance, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. Okay, but there's no mechanism for that to happen. It's just God stating that it will happen, but no hint of how. Jeremiah says that one day there will be a new covenant, something beyond Moses. After those days, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So plainly, there's more to come, more to be revealed. And there's a mystery being unfolded here. But what? The psalmists incorporated this into the worship cycle of the nation. Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, and he does, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This is the kind of fear that makes us want to draw near, that fears having a gap between us and God, not the fear that makes us want to run and hide. Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins. How? Nor repay us according to our iniquities. Why not? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How? It's a mystery. He doesn't say. Now, the answer to the riddle about the bear is hidden in here. Now, as far as the east is from the west... The sun appears to rise in the east and set in the west because we are actually moving underneath the sun, spinning west to east, right-hand rule, northward angular momentum, and the earth is spinning on its axis. You can keep on going north and north and north until you can't go any further north. North pole. Hello, Santa. You cannot go east, or at least you can't put your finger on a globe and keep going east until you can go east no further because we just go round and round and round. Why didn't the psalmist say... As far as the north is from the south, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. Because from the north to the south is a known distance. Chance to show off. Does anybody know exactly, exactly how far that distance is? If you don't, I'll show off for all of us. It is exactly 20 million meters. When the meter was created and invented, it was defined. It's different now, but at the time, 10 million of these things from the North Pole to the equator. Because it was the French that were doing it, it's 10 million meters from the North Pole to the equator through the Paris Observatory. Merci. Now, another 10 million gets us to the South Pole. If the Lord removed our sins as far as the North is from the South, it's only 20 million meters. That's not far enough for me. But if the Lord removes our sin as far as the East is from the West... That is a metaphorical distance. That will do. That's much better. Now, I said you can go north and north and north and get to the North Pole. And that's the, uh, the trick to where our house is. Now, I said that all the windows faced south. In this building, the offices face south, the classrooms face north. Where would you put a building where all the walls, all the windows faced south? At the North Pole. So, The bear that's trapping you inside your house. What color is the bear? (laughs) The bear is a polar bear because we are at the North Pole. So I heard many people say white. The bear is white. So good job, everybody. The mystery of God's forgiveness and justice is harder. How can a just God who always punishes sin also be a forgiving and gracious God. The New Testament answers the riddle of the Old Testament. How can God love forgiveness and justice? How can there be any justice if God is a God who forgives? Hebrews 9 and 10, which we'll be studying after Labor Day. And I have selected sentences. If you think I'm skipping and jumping, I am. If you don't like that, you can read all the verses in between on your own time. Indeed, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. What's not purified with blood? I don't know. It says almost. I didn't go looking for the exceptions. Purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus has appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We have been sanctified to the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Because it's unnecessary. It's done. Paul clears it up a little further in Colossians 2. And you who were dead, dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, sweeping it under the rug. No, this he set aside so that we could earn our way back to him. No, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Romans 3 marries together the themes of grace and justice. We are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice that turns away wrath, an offering that assuages anger, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Sin is being punished. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, many of them. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is just, punishing sin, every sin, and the justifier, punishing Jesus as a substitute for the sins of his people. And this is critical. This is where we get back to our forgiveness. And it's a little bit counterintuitive. We can forgive other people because God is a God of punishing wrath. Sounds a little silly, but God is the judge. He will punish. It's not up to me. It's up to him. It's not my job when we say, I will not hold this against you, we mean, I'm not going to because he can and he will. I'm releasing this to God. Now, consider it from God's perspective. Same working definition. I will not hold this against you. When God says, I will not hold this against you and forgives, it's because he holds it against somebody else. We can roll the burden of dealing with sin up to God because God is the judge. Somebody must pay. It'll either be Jesus with forgiveness or not. We put the emphasis on I. I will not hold this against you. God is very, very similar in the definition, but he puts the emphasis at the end. I will not hold this against you. I will instead hold it against Jesus. And he's the final judge. He can do that perfectly, and he's better at it than we are. Romans 12 If possible, so far as it depends on you, and it doesn't always, we'll come back to that, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God has put it in us to crave justice, to see wrongs, right it. And maybe we'd prefer he go easy on our sins. But when we see something dreadful, something evil happen in our cities, in our land, in our government, or around the world, we know this ought not stand. Something must be done. And because we know that he can handle it, we don't have to. We can forgive. And it starts in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Elaborating, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. This is not earning forgiveness by doing forgiveness, all right? It's showing that there is a congruence, an alignment between being a forgiven person and a forgiving person. They go together. Here's Mark. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So that your father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Luke is especially pointed. And this parallels the passage that Miss Bree read. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Have that conversation. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, <laughs> I repent. You must forgive him. Now, Sometimes this forgiveness is relatively small. The ordinary wear and tear of living in this world with people that you like and get along with. We still sin against each other on a regular basis, even under the best of circumstances. So sometimes we see the command is to forbear, to endure, to overlook. Just let it go. Don't sweat the small stuff. Proverbs 19, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. First Corinthians 13, not just for weddings, actually more for marriages and beyond. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And this from Peter, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, not that love sweeps away a multitude of crimes, but love multi- covers over a multitude of sins. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 are practically identical. We just did Colossians uh, earlier in the summer. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, because of what God has done for us, the indicative. Then here comes the imperative. This is what's supposed to happen next. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Compare that with what's practically the same in Ephesians. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. I was hoping to hold on to the malice, but no, let that go too. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now note the analogy there. As God in Christ forgave you, so you must also forgive others. You must forgive others as the Lord has forgiven you. Every command to forgive is rooted in what God has done for us, the forgiveness of us, just like in the parable. You were forgiven much, so therefore. But it's not just the small stuff, is it, that we can easily overlook and forgive. God calls us to forgive major offenses, life-altering offenses, crimes even. The call to forgive does not distinguish between the easy stuff and uh, the big bad stuff. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, not strychnine. And from Luke, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. First Thessalonians, see that no one repays anyone, evil for evil. Evil was delivered one way, what do we send back the other way? Not evil, but always seek to do good to one another, and to everyone. And the last one, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, which by the way, is about proportionate response, okay? That was part of a criminal justice system, not personal private revenge. Uh, It's meant to be in proportion. You lose one of your 32 teeth, that's unfortunate. You lose one of your two eyes, that's worse, but it's meant to keep things from escalating, out of control. You give me a paper cut, I chop off your hand. No, it's not that. And it's um, a system of compensation, Right? It, it was for payment. Nobody was losing eyes and teeth in the, Israeli, uh, the Israel, ancient Israel criminal justice system. An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. No, it was for payment. Okay? Don't think of the Old Testament law as barbaric. This was civilized, especially for uh, the day and age. Okay. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jeremy, come on up. The elders have a long history of picking on Jeremy from when he was wee to now he is no longer wee. Here he is. And um, <clears throat> last week, he missed the opportunity to receive $1,000 from Craig Hunter. I don't pay as well as Mr. Hunter, but nevertheless, Jeremy is here anyway. Now, imagine imagine that um, we have had words, and it's going to come to blows. Very good. Now, I'm sure many of you have been dreaming of the chance for me to get punched in the face. If you were to punch me, you're a righty, you punch me with your right hand, which side of my nose are you going to strike? My left. This is my left, everybody. Now, if you wanted to take your right hand and make contact with my right cheek, he's backhanding me. Now, he would do more damage to me with a backhand than I would do to him, but it's not to do harm. It's an insult. Okay? He has insulted me. Thank you very much. I do not pay well, but I do have a participation trophy with a $2 bill. Thank you. much. Thank you. Go. Here is the point. God is calling us to do something we cannot do. Command what you will, but grant what you command. Right? Augustine. We cannot summon up this degree of forgiveness and love for our enemies. We need God help. God's help to forgive God's way. And maybe we can learn to let the small stuff go or we could become more adept at rolling up sin to God to deal with. But to go and love your enemies to affirmatively do good to them. This isn't enemies at the gate or enemies on Twitter. This is the enemy in your office, the enemy in your family tree, the enemy from your past. And to love, pray And bless. Don't, don't be scandalized or discouraged that we can't do it. Of course we can't do it. We need God's help to make this possible. Only He could make that happen because He knows how bad we can be to each other, right? In three weeks, we will pick up here and review what we've done. We will cover obstacles to forgiveness. Uh, four directions of forgiveness, four degrees of forgiveness, four flavors of forgiveness, four false models of forgiveness. You can see I'm really going to be leaning into my theme. And we'll tackle the how-tos, the objections, the hey, what about this, and your questions, real questions, please, not gotchas. I want to be helpful to you people and not just bandy words around. Now, When Jesus, banned, you can come on up because the prayer will be short. When Jesus told his followers in Luke 17, if your brother sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. They understood the magnitude of what was being said to them. Their response was, Lord, increase our faith, which is polite speech for you've got to be kidding me. Surely you're joking. That's absurd. You're going to have to give us more faith if you want us to behave like that. Because these are people who lived under the Roman boot, right? They were familiar with being sinned against collectively and individually. But this same Jesus was willing to do as he said himself. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was willing to go through Good Friday because he knew that his father was merciful and gracious and would not clear the guilty, the bringer of perfect justice and the justifier of his people so that we could live like him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to open your word, and I pray that what we've seen there would stick with us, and everything that was in this time that was not from your word, that it would pass from us, and that you would be helping us to address, understand, and forgive. With your help, forgive that which has been done to us. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.